You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 15 is where we're going to be today. Now last week we looked uh, pretty extensively at the chapter as a whole. Uh, This week we're going to look more in depth at one single verse in Genesis chapter 15. Um, You'll remember last week in looking at Genesis 15 there's a couple of different encounters with God that Abram has. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, he's questioning God about whether the, the promise of seed coming from Abram and growing into a great nation actually comes from him, or is it going to be through adoption? Because as Abram looks around and he sees himself coming more towards the end of his life, all he has in his possession is a uh, an individual to inherit everything that's that's not his own child. It's somebody that is kind of an adopted slave, an adopted inheritor. And so he's questioning God, have I misunderstood you? Because I, I, I thought I believed that I was actually going to have a child and I haven't had a child yet. And so he's wondering whether he misunderstood God. And so God, in that encounter, communicates to him, brings him outside uh, and shows him the stars and, and reminds him that, yes, you're going to have a child and that's going to lead to descendants that number the stars. And then there's some question as to whether or not he can have validation that he's going to possess the land. And that's leading God to a, a formal ceremony where he confirms this covenant with Abram. And so we talked about these animals being brought. The animals were cut in two. They were sliced open. They were spread out. And and it's a gory scene. Um, And we said it would have resonated with Abram because this was the formal contractual type ceremony they used when making a covenant with someone else. And so the way this worked is people would, would take their animals, they would cut them in two, and then they would walk between these animals making promises to each other. And so as they walked in between the animals making promises, the understanding was if I don't keep my promises, then my fate should be the same as these animals. And so it was a very vivid picture for those that partook in some type of ceremony like this because it was a serious ordeal. You were seriously committing yourself to your word with the understanding that if I don't keep my word, you have every right to cut me up like you've done to these animals. And so the picture, the the scene is set But then what's different than every other experience Abram would have had with this is that God is the only one that walks between the animals. That Abram is never asked to make promises in this covenant. That the covenant obligations apply to God. And so God is walking to and fro in this uh, this setting. He appears as as light, as fire, and he's communicating promises to Abram. And and the, the encouragement to us is that our salvation rests on the promises that God makes to us and our belief in those promises, not in our promise and our promises to perform up to a certain standard. Okay, so we had discussed that last week. Uh, we talked about some different things that we learn about God in the midst of this conversation. First of all, that God's glory dictates his timing. Remember, we said that, that God is purposefully waiting, even after he's called Abram out of his home, he's purposefully waiting to give him a child because as Romans 4 tells us, he wants Abram and Sarah to be as good as dead so that when he provides a child, he receives the glory. So God's timing in our life is all about his glory and he rarely does things quickly. When he brings Abram out and makes this promise that his descendants are going to number the stars, we have, to, we have to think through the fact that that's going to take a long time, that that's not an overnight type promise that he can claim. 
that, that that's a future promise. And God even tells him, you're not going to see this fulfilled. You're not going to see it fulfilled. You're going to have a child and that's going to lead to this, but you're not going to see this in your lifetime. We also learn that God does not have poor timing. He goes on to clarify to Abram, you're not going to, you're not going to see the land. You're going to die. Your, your descendants are going to inherit it, but not after, not until after another hundred, 400 years. And it's only after they suffer and are tortured in Egypt for that time will they then come back to the land. And, and God tells them the reason for that is the Amorites' iniquity needs to be filled up. So God's laying out this plan, but nothing's by accident. Everything's intentional. God doesn't have poor timing. He communicates to Abram in advance, this is coming, and it's absolutely the way that it's supposed to be. Because when you come into the land, you're going to judge the Amorites, and their time for repentance will have expired. And so that brings us to discussion today, specifically in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15. So I want to turn your attention there. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. After God has communicated some of these things to Abram, it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, most of us probably read this and anticipate um, some of the further deeper understanding that comes to us in the New Testament about this. But if we're reading Genesis for the very first time and we're studying the origins of these type of things, this is the first time that we have righteousness and faith connected together. It's also the first time that we have this concept of counting or reckoning mentioned to us as well. And so this is God revealing how salvation works here at the very beginning. And so we'll look at our summary sentence for this morning uh, to get us started. Our summary sentence, Abram's salvation fully rests in the belief he expressed in God's ability and reliability to do what he promised to do, even when the natural circumstances around him seemed to indicate otherwise. Abram's salvation, God counts it to him as righteousness. So his salvation fully rests in the belief he expressed. So it says that Abram believed God, it was counted as righteousness, his salvation rests in the belief he expressed in God's ability. So this is a, a, a power belief that God has the power to do what he's saying. But then also the reliability of God, the faithfulness of God to carry through with what he's promised. So Abram expresses belief both in the, the ability of God and the reliability of God to do what he promised to do. And then the New Testament further clarifies for, clarifies for us, even when the natural circumstances around him seemed to indicate otherwise. When it didn't look like he was capable of having children, Abram believed God. When it, when it didn't look like Isaac was going to be the descendant because God was asking for his life, Abram believed God. Believed God so much so that he believed that God would bring him back from the dead if he actually took his life on the altar because God had made promises to him. And so even when natural circumstances would say otherwise, Abram believed that God would come in and resurrect his child. And we talked before, I think when we were looking at that passage at a different, in a different sermon, that there was really no concept of resurrection at that time, right? I mean, we in here uh, could talk about resurrection. We could even say that we believed that God could resurrect somebody, 
because we've got accounts in Scripture of God doing that. Up to this point, Abram may have zero reference points for God resurrecting people. And the Bible says that he believed that God could do that if necessary because Isaac was the chosen one, that God had promised that. Okay, so Abram's salvation. He believed God. It's counted to him as righteousness. Abram's salvation rests in the belief he expressed in God's ability and his reliability to do what he promised to do. Now, the account of Abram's salvation here, this is probably not saving faith for the first time in his life. Okay, so there's people on both sides of the camp. Is this when Abram gets saved? Is Abram finally now what we would call a Christian? Or has he been a Christian this whole time ever since he left his his land? Um, I would probably lean more towards the idea that Abram is a Christian already at this point. This is just further clarification about him expressing faith in what God has told him. Um, Because Hebrews 11 seems to indicate that saving faith happened when he began to express his faith. In um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, when, when you're reading through the, the account of Hebrews and the Old Testament saints that express faith, Abram's story doesn't pick up and start here. It says, By faith Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Okay, It seems to be that his salvation experience happens at the very beginning. Um, but you could potentially argue that he was growing in his knowledge, much like Cornelius in the book of Acts, where he was believing in the amount of revelation he was exposed to, but Cornelius needed further revelation to really experience New Testament salvation. And so Peter comes and they have to have a conversation about Jesus so that he faithfully puts his, his faith in Jesus Um, So it's possible that maybe Abram's on that journey to salvation, and this is actually when he crosses from death to life. It's not clear in Scripture. Uh, But secondly, this is not the first account of saving faith in history. So while it is the first mention of someone believing God and it being reckoned to their account as righteousness, this is not the first account of saving faith in history. If you go back to Hebrews 11, you back up a little bit, you've got Abel, you've got Enoch, you've got Noah. These are people that expressed faith in God and we would say are in God's presence today. So this isn't the first uh, account of someone being saved, okay? But this is probably the first time that we get a clear description of how salvation works. So we've heard about people in Genesis that we would say are believers that are Christians in the New Testament language, but we, we don't really have good historical accounts of when they put their faith and trust in God, okay? So this is the first time in the narrative that, that the author, that Moses really hones in on, this is Abram and this is how he was saved. Okay? Um, understanding some of the concepts here. So back in Genesis 15, I think it's important for us to understand some of these words and the concepts of how they're being used. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So understanding this word believe, understanding this word believe, um, it means to lean your whole weight upon, to, to lean your whole weight upon, to, to cast everything upon this object. Abram believes God. He, he leans his whole weight upon God. God's word reveals that believing God is the key to one's salvation. Okay, so while we believe that the, that the Bible clearly minimizes 
performance-based understanding for salvation, that we don't do things to earn God's favor. We do believe that God's word emphasizes that believing God is really uh, a key component to one's salvation. How do we know this? Well, in, um, in John chapter 20, verse 31, this is John writing his account of Jesus's life, and he doesn't clue the reader into the purpose of him writing until the very end of the book. And in John 20, 31, these are written, these things in this book are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word for believe is used over a hundred times in John's gospel. It was uh, an important understanding for him to communicate to those that wish to follow Jesus. In Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, talking about Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, understanding the law of Moses is a list of rules to keep. What, what's being communicated here is that salvation doesn't come from performance. It doesn't come from keeping the law of Moses. It comes through belief in Jesus Christ. That sets us free in a way that the law of Moses never could set us free. All right? Um, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21... A familiar passage to us, one that that emphasizes, again, the need for belief in order to be saved. In Romans 3, 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So God's word uh, reveals in a heavy way that belief in God is key to one's salvation. All right. Um, I had two guys come to me after uh, teaching chapel last week, two guys that said, hey, I need to talk more with you about my own salvation. So I've been challenging kids if they're if they're wrestling through because we're going through Galatians and whether they've really put their faith and trust in the gospel. And so these two guys have been meeting with me in the mornings and and I've been calling them to believe in, in Jesus Christ. And so one of the first conversations we had, you have to believe that Jesus Christ was a real man, but that he was more than a man and that he lived a perfect life for you. He died on a real cross for you and he truly came back from the dead. That we have to start with some real facts that we have to put our faith and trust in because the word tells us that our salvation is based on belief in God. All right. But next, God's word reveals that believing God affects the daily decisions that we make. Okay, so it doesn't completely remove performance. It it, it instructs us that belief comes first. And when we put belief in God, it leads to a change in the daily decisions that we make. Right. 
uh, Abram, if you read the account in Hebrews 11, 8 through 19, Abram believed God, but then he did a whole bunch of things because he believed in God, right? He's willing to offer up Isaac. He's willing to leave his land. He's willing to make sacrifices in his life. He's willing to look forward to a city that, that's different than an earthly city, one that has foundations built by God, all right? His, his belief in God affected his daily decisions. James chapter 2, what used to be, in, as the books of the Bible were being put together into the canon, a controversial book because it seemed to overemphasize the role of works. But in James chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? All right, it goes on to talk about that belief uh, is something that could be claimed by the demons, that the demons believe in God. But verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Okay, so God's word believes that we, God's word reveals that we have to believe in God, but it also reminds us that true belief in God affects the daily decisions that we make. Scripture teaches us and reminds us that we're saved by believing God's promises, but not by making promises. Every other religion would tell us that we make promises to our God in order to be reconciled to him. God's word tells us that God has made all the promises needed for our salvation. All right, so, so Abram believed, but then there's this concept of God counting righteousness to him, understanding this concept of counted To be saved, one needs righteousness applied to his account rather than sin. To be saved, one needs righteousness applied to his account rather than sin. So ultimately, our destiny is determined by what our account says. Does our account read a lifestyle of sin or does our account read perfect righteousness in psalm chapter 32 verse 2 blessed is the man against whom the lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit all right the david cries out here and says that that blessed is the man that god does not count sin to his account all right um but in second corinthians 5 19 through 21 we get the flip side of things where it's not just about sin not being counted to us. It's about righteousness being counted to us instead. In 2 Corinthians five nineteen, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to our to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so to be saved, we believe in God. To be saved, we need uh, righteousness applied to our account rather than sin. We'll come back to this concept here in, in just a few minutes. Understanding uh, righteousness, it's in your notes, but I don't have it on the slide. Uh, righteousness is behavior that serves the community based on God's norms. You can understand righteousness as being uh, the behavior of an individual that serves the community based on God's norms. 
So God sets forth his normal concept and understanding of behavior. That's righteousness, to, to adhere to God's normal standard of behavior. And it's a behavior that serves the community. You can also understand it as conforming to God's standard of right. Conforming to God's standard of right. So our summary here of, of chapter 6, what, did, what, did, what, did, what is communicated here by Moses? Abram believed what God communicated to him, and God considered Abram righteous based on the future work of Christ. All right, Book of Romans says that God... Uh, in his forbearance, passed over the sins of people in the Old Testament, realizing that he was going to judge those sins on the cross. So people in the Old Testament were saved on credit. Okay? They, they enjoyed things even though they hadn't paid for things, right? The concept of a credit card. They enjoyed salvation even though in real time their salvation had not been purchased yet. God went ahead and gave them the, the joys and the comforts of salvation even though that purchase, that transaction had not happened, okay? We as believers in the New Testament now, because Christ has come, Christ has died on the cross, we now enjoy all the benefits as well, but it has been paid for, okay? Abram believed what God had communicated to him, and he keeps on believing God as more things are communicated to him throughout his life, and God considered Abram righteous because God knew that Christ was coming to be righteous. Okay, that's what 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. He doesn't consider us sinful. He considers Christ sinful. There's a, there's a trade. There's an exchange. All right, and so I was talking with these two guys in my office. You need a 100% grade to get into heaven, a 100% perfect, no errors, no mess-ups, complete adherence to God's law. And it really doesn't matter if you go 65, 70, 75, 80%. If it's not 100, you're not considered righteous. Jesus comes, he earns the perfect life for us, and then he offers us the great exchange. I'll take your 60, I'll take your 65, I'll take your 85, I'll take your 90, you take my 100. God treats him as sinful, God treats him as imperfect, and he instead treats us as perfect now. There's a transaction in the grade book. There's a trade in the grade book. We're now considered 100s. Jesus is treated as though he is not, and he accepts our punishment for it. All right, so what did Abram believe? He trusted in God's ability that power concept we talked about, and he trusted in God's reliability, his faithfulness to do what he promised to do. All right? Now, last week I told you and I asked you, and hopefully some of you were able to do so, to, to read and study through three important passages in the New Testament that reference Genesis fifteen six. right? Romans 4, Galatians 3, and James 2. All three of these books of the Bible, these chapters, reference this really important verse in the old testament they build their case for us understanding salvation on a deeper level through what god communicated at the very beginning in abram's life all right now we talked more extensively about romans 4 probably maybe a year or so ago when we were going through romans chapter by chapter um in romans chapter 4 um You'll remember that, that Paul relies heavily on the account of Abram, or Abraham at this point, to build his case for our understanding of salvation. Um, and so he's, he's built this case of salvation through Romans 1, 2, and 3. And then Romans 4, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abram, or Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God. 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul anticipates, he's, he's presented a really good case in 1, 2, and 3 that salvation is by faith, it's by grace. But he anticipates his Jewish readers saying, well, what about Abraham? Because we all know, everybody, everybody who's anybody knows that Abraham was saved by his good works. So is Abraham just the exception to this? And so Paul wants to illustrate and show he's not the exception. He's the rule for this, that he's the example. My case that salvation comes by grace through faith is because it did that for Abraham, that he wasn't reconciled to God because of his works. Okay, And so Romans chapter 4 unfolds, and he highlights time and time again that Abraham was not saved by good works. He was not saved by circumcision. He was not saved because he was Jewish. That he's the prototypical example of what it means to be saved for everybody. Okay? So let's look at that. Um, Romans chapter 4. And again, we're not going to read through the whole thing. I'm I'm hoping that you had a chance to read through that some this week. But what Romans 4 does communicate to us, it reveals a concrete example of how chapter 3 works in normal life. So you go back to read Romans 3. Romans chapter 3 talks about salvation and how it comes to us separate from the law, that we don't work for our salvation. We put faith and trust and belief in God. Give me an example of that. Paul says, here's your example. It's Abraham. Secondly, Romans 4 reveals how the old and the new covenant reflect the same way of salvation. Okay, so don't make the mistake of thinking that Old Testament people were saved by sacrifices and New Testament people are saved by Jesus' sacrifice. Okay, people in the Old Testament saved the same way as people in the New Testament. Okay, we don't see the gospel plan changing through time. It's not that God saves some people some way this time, and then he saves other people a different way. All right, he saves Abram by faith. He believed God, counted as righteousness. Number three, it reveals that justification by faith and justification is being declared righteous. It reveals that justification by faith is as old as Judaism. Okay, so the Jewish people that would like to claim Abraham as being different, as things being different in the Old Testament, because they were having a hard time blending Jesus with what they had grown up knowing. Justification by faith is as old as their religion. Number four, it reveals that Romans 3.27 applies to everyone. Romans 3.27 says that nobody can boast about their salvation, including Abraham. And number five, it reveals that justification does not depend on outward signs. Okay, so Paul... Uh, very clearly shows that Abraham was not saved by circumcision. Okay, He's not saved by circumcision because he was declared righteous in the narrative in 15, Genesis 15. He believed God, he's counted as righteous. In chapter 17, God institutes circumcision after his salvation. All right, He's not saved by family heritage because at that time in 15 when he's declared righteous, the things that we understand as, as Jewish uh, indicators, they're not there yet. Circumcision's a big one. That, that indicated to you uh, to others that, that you were Jewish. It indicated to yourself that you were of a Jewish family or you had adopted Jewish practices. He doesn't have that when he's saved. And he doesn't have good works to back up his salvation either at this point. The concept of Isaac, what we really hang our hats on as his great expression of faith, comes down the road after 15, after Genesis 15, where he's declared righteous. Okay, so these are some important things that Romans chapter 4 reveals to us. It reminds us that, that righteousness, the concept of righteousness, is that we either earn it or we receive it. 
Okay, we've already said other religions teach that we have to earn righteousness. The Bible teaches that we receive it because Christ has earned it for us. Now, going back to an example that we used when we went through Romans chapter um, four. If we earn righteousness, so if we base our salvation on our performance, then God owes us salvation and God must direct deposit righteousness into our account. Okay, we used the job example, right? You can thank your employer for paying you at the end of the pay period. And that's, that's great, that's gracious, that's nice, that's considerate of you. But if you've worked your job, they owe you what they pay you. You can express gratitude for it, but it's an expectation, right? You, sh- you would have every right to be frustrated if you've set up direct deposit with your financial secretary at your employer's place and then at the end of the month or halfway through the month, the money is not in your account. You would have every right and you could go to, to, to legal means to recoup that money because they owe it to you. You, you earned it. You performed for it and they deserve and, and have the right to pay you for it. Okay, so if, if God owes us righteousness, if at the end of our life God says, okay, your good life warrants you being considered righteous, then he, he has to direct deposit that into our account. He counts us righteous because he has to, because we earned it. But what scripture reveals is a different concept. That we receive righteousness. That God earns our righteousness and credits our account with righteousness. And I use the example of my mom when I was in college. Remember, when I was in college, my mom uh, had to help me pay for college. Okay, So my mom would work a separate job And she would take that check and she would deposit it into my account. Okay. I didn't deserve that. My mom didn't owe me that. Okay. My mom, out of her own love for me, said, I'm going to pick up an extra job. I'm going to work and I'm going to give you that money. Now, I also had a job and I would work and that money would show up in my account as well. There was a portion that that I had earned. There was another large portion that I had not earned but it was still credited to my account. I still had the, the ability to use that money. I had the, the luxury of enjoying that money and paying off my school bill. For us, our salvation is not something that God direct deposits to us because we, we deserved it or we are uh, in a state where we earned it. Jesus worked for it. He earned righteousness for us, and then he sticks it in our account. And we look at our account and we see righteousness. Not because we earned it, but because Jesus earned it and stuck it in our account for reasons that we read that he loves us. But when we really meditate, it's reasons that we really don't understand why the creator would stick that type of thing into our account when we don't deserve it. When we didn't warrant it, when actually our behavior dictates the exact opposite, right? What we should find in our account is our wages and our wages is death because of our sin. And what we find is that God God takes that and he removes it from our account and applies it to Christ. Okay, so Romans 4 is taking this 15.6 verse, Abram believed God, counted as righteous, and, and Paul is building a strong case for us to better understand our own salvation in Romans chapter 4. These two different understandings of righteousness, one leads to boasting, right? If I earn my salvation, then I get to boast about it. The other leads to worship. And Paul tells us in Romans 3 and 4, nobody gets to boast about their salvation because nobody does earn it. Both the Old Testament example of Abram 
and the New Testament example of the thief on the cross minimize the role of works in salvation. Okay, what do you mean by that? Old Testament, circumcision was huge. Everybody wanted to point to circumcision as being a sign of salvation. Abram, Paul says, saved before circumcision. So go ahead and remove circumcision as a need for salvation. In the New Testament, a lot of times people want to harp on church membership, church attendance, baptism, partaking of the Lord's Supper. These are things necessary to save one's soul. The very first example of somebody entering into paradise with Jesus is the thief on the cross. He's not a member of a church. He probably has never attended a synagogue based on, on how he seemed to have lived his life. He's, he's dying because he deserves it. He's not going to get down and partake of the Lord's Supper. Jesus had just instituted the Lord's Supper, right? So he hasn't had a chance to even partake of the Lord's Supper. He's not getting down and getting baptized. Doesn't matter how much he screams and belly aches about it. They're not taking him down, putting him in water, and then putting him back up so that his soul goes to paradise with Jesus. And I think, I think that salvation experience is there specifically for us to rely on. That if one individual can enter paradise with Jesus without being a member of a church, without taking the Lord's Supper, without being baptized, then whatever he gets in with is the same way we get in that we don't need these additional signs and works in order to earn righteousness. Okay, it's based on work of Jesus. All right. Um, Let's see here. Uh, A couple more things here in my notes on this. Um, Our outward signs uh, seal what we already possess. Romans chapter 4, verse 11, the things that we talk about, church membership, baptism, the Lord's Supper, in the Old Testament, circumcision, these were things that, that were uh, meant to show evidence of what we already possessed. In Romans 4.11, he, talking about Abram, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Okay, His circumcision came after his salvation. All right. Um, Galatians chapter 3. Look briefly at that real quick. Um, We won't spend as much time on Galatians 3. Uh, But basically in Galatians 3, Abram's faith is is used as an example of how we uh, follow in the same type of faith for salvation. Uh, Galatians 3, the whole book is about the Galatians potentially wandering away from the gospel that they've accepted. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, so he's reminding them their salvation is based on faith. Verse seven of Galatians three. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, so Paul's reminding that it really has no ties to your national descent as to whether salvation's possible for you. Um, skipping down to verse 14. So that in, G- in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He goes on to clarify some key words that God uses in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant. Now, we talked about a divine covenant last week in Genesis 15. 
Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, so he's emphasizing that Christ ultimately is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Abraham. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer coming by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. All right, um, skip down to verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All right, so Abram's faith is the example of how we follow in faith for our own salvation. And then in James uh, chapter 2, we've already looked at today, Abram's faith was demonstrated in his actions. Okay, so James 2 calls upon Genesis fifteen six and says, yes, belief in God, but it's a belief in God that's different than what the demons believe. It's a belief that leads to different choices and decisions. Okay, it's, it's believing certain things about God that affect our decision-making process. Okay, um, so kind of concluding with these, oh, you can go ahead and start copying that down. But concluding with these three important passages, Romans 4, Galatians 3, and James 2, Abram follows the natural order of saving faith. Hang on just a second, I think I had this slide. Abram follows the natural order of saving faith. Genesis 15, as we're in right now, Abram expressed faith. In Genesis 17, he received the sign of faith. At that time, circumcision. We would say in the New Testament, we express faith. When we've believed in God, we receive the sign of faith, which is baptism. Okay, so belief in God, we're then baptized and then it says he lived a life that expressed his faith in Genesis 22. That's the account of uh, Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac. Okay? New Testament says that's his big claim to faith, that he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. So same for us in the New Testament. We, we express faith. We receive the sign of faith. And then our life should be led in such a way that we show expressions of faith in our daily decision making. So he expressed faith, he received the sign of faith, he lived a life that expressed his faith, despite never realizing all of the promises here on this earth. And that's probably the, the big point of emphasis that's going to kind of lead us into our final point of discussion for this morning. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, after the author of Hebrews has kind of rattled off all these Old Testament saints and their faith. And I guess his hand's getting a little tired because he says in verse 32, what more shall I say for time would fail me? Uh, my hand maybe would fail me to continue writing about all these people, to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
women receive back their dead by resurrection. I mean, you read about that part right there and you're thinking, man, you come to faith in Jesus Christ and everything starts to break your way, right? You're, you're in a lion's den and lion's mouth shut. Nothing bad happens to you. You lose your children, they come back from the dead. Like you read that and you're thinking, wow, like why would we not sign up for Christianity? Sounds like you get supernatural power to accomplish everything good in your life. But then look what the rest of this passage says. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You get the flip side there at the end of Hebrews 11. There's a whole bunch of people that the lion's mouths weren't stopped for. There were a whole lot of armies that they weren't stopped, that they were allowed to carry through with their swords. And they were cutting believers in half and sawing them in two. And they were tortured and they were afflicted. And that's not all that different than what we see today. There are some that enjoy God's goodness in a totally different way than other people. Now, we would argue that God's goodness is being showered upon every believer on this earth. It just looks different. And Hebrews 11 tells us that it looks different. Some women get their children back from the dead in the Old Testament. There's a lot of believers today that suffer the loss of their children. And they don't get them back from the dead. The lion's mouths were stopped for a lot. And they were wide open for a lot. And we don't know the reasoning behind why one was one way and one was the other. But what's, what's really telling here is the last part in verse 39. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I think it's really important to see two different people groups here. People groups that from the human eye, it looks like everything's going their way. And then this other group that seems like they can't catch a break to save their life. And then the author of Hebrews says, neither group, neither group received the promises fully that God intends to give to them. It's not that God promised and some of them got it and some of them were left out in the dark. And these people had a great life and everything went their way. And, and for whatever reason, these people didn't get God's good promises. No, the author of Hebrews says you got two people groups, some that everything seems to go their way and others, it doesn't seem like anything goes their way. And for both, the reality is neither has experienced the promises that God intends to give to them. They are future promises. And all through Hebrews 11, it says that people like Abraham and Moses looked to something greater than earthly circumstances. When they were in the midst of poor circumstances, they were assured that something greater was coming. Even in the midst of great circumstances, they were not satisfied with the best that this world has to offer. They looked to greater things to come. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us, it doesn't matter which group you're in. People that live in America and it seems like everything's going great or people that live in China and they're scared to death to meet because they're not sure if they'll make it out alive. Neither group 
Neither group is more blessed by God, and neither group is experiencing the promises of God better than another group. Neither group has fully experienced the promises that are yet to come. It says, God provides something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The implication is, is that every believer that dies before Jesus comes back has to wait, has to wait because we're all going to enjoy the promises together. See, I cringe sometimes when people at at Christian funerals talk in terms as though that person that's gone ahead is done. And they're experiencing everything that they're going to experience. Because that's not true. There's nobody in God's presence right now with a glorified body. The, the implication in Hebrews 11, because you go into, into chapter 12 here, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that are waiting for us to finish our race as well. Why? Because they don't have the promises yet. They're in heaven. It's a far better place than here. Paul tells us that. It's, it's better to be with Christ but he's going to stay here to continue ministry, but he has a long to be with Christ. But the implication of Hebrews 11 is this great inheritance that's coming, that, that's unfading, that's kept in glory for us, it gets issued to us all at the same time when Jesus comes back and death is defeated and sickness is defeated and we're given glorified bodies and we have perfect fellowship with each other and we don't sin anymore. It doesn't matter whether your circumstances are good or bad. You can look and compare with each other and say, why is God doing that in that person's life and not doing it in my life? The reality is, is that God's not doing any of his promises to the full extent as he intends to do in the future. And that's the hope for all of us, is that no matter what circumstances we're dealing with right now, and no matter what circumstances we deal with coming this week, we all have the same promise, that something greater is still to come. Okay, so our application, we must express initial belief in God that leads to a continued belief in the great promises of God. Despite the various trials we may encounter today, believing instead in the better things to come. Okay, so there's an initial expression of belief. Abram had that. And then he continues to live a life of belief. Now, we've talked heavily about this recently, that we need to continue believing the promises of God We need to take care of our souls so that we don't have an unbelieving heart that that sets in because of the deceitfulness of sin. We express belief in God. We keep believing in the promises of God despite the various trials we encounter. We instead look towards things that are better, that are to come in the future. Even if our circumstances never get better here on this earth. Even if you lose your job and you never get another job. Even if you lose a child and you never get another child. It's not promises that your circumstances will always get better here on earth. The promise that's guaranteed is that the future circumstance applies to all of us, and it's far better than the worst thing here on earth, and it's far better than the best thing here on earth. And we all get the same unfading hope of glory in the future. Okay, so that's the application. Now let's look um, a little more closely at this concept of suffering. So you remember last week we talked about that the the scripture promises many sufferings coming to believers. In Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children than heirs, heirs of God and and follow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
So the anticipation is that we should expect to suffer. Hebrews 11 and 12 reminds us of that. Um, and then we come to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. This is where we're going um, to look at a little bit here. Let me see. Um, If we can get this to pop up here. All right. First Peter one, three through nine. Now this isn't all of three through nine. We're going to look at the first part here in just a second. Okay. But first Peter one here says in this, you rejoice though. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though, have you, not, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, if you're looking at this passage, it should stand out to you that... Um, Back up there. Up there again. This section right here that says, in this, you rejoice. All right. What's that in this that we should rejoice about when it comes to our trials? If we go to the, ne- the first part of this verse. So back at the beginning in verse three. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so this is what we've been talking about, that God has promised something far greater than we can imagine in the future. According to his great mercy, we have this living hope, and Jesus is the basis of that hope. His resurrection informs us of this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, it doesn't change, right? Our circumstances, even the best of circumstances here on earth, we're not promised that they won't change. But this future inheritance that we have, it doesn't change. And it's kept in heaven for us, who, talking about us, by God's power, we're being guarded by God through faith for a salvation so that we can get this in the last time. So we talk about God being the one that helps us persevere to the end. He seals us with his Holy Spirit. He starts a good work in us. He finishes the good work in us. Okay, so that concept, this future salvation, it's in that that we're called to rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What, what encouragement do we see offered there in that passage? That trials are going to come, yes, but I believe there's some encouragement offered to us in the midst of those trials. Beyond what we just talked about, in this you rejoice. What's some encouragement that's offered to us there in that passage according to what you see? Anybody? 
Okay, he's going to keep us in salvation. Good. What else? What's encouraging about trials that we face? They don't last forever, right? I mean, uh, the author of Hebrews tells us real quick, now for a little while. They're, they're temporary. Even if they last our whole life here on this earth. Somebody born with some type of physical affliction that they never see relief from. In the, in the perspective of eternity, it's a little while, right? So in this we rejoice, this unfading hope of glory that's going to come to all of us at the same time. We rejoice in that. Even if for a little while we have trials, what other encouragements offered here? All right, there, there's a purpose in it. Um, it gives us genuine faith. What else? Okay. It's an opportunity for us to show faith, how we respond to our trials. Okay, to test, to, to show that our faith is genuine. I think this, this key part right here. If necessary. Somebody, so I don't have to jump back and forth. Somebody look up 1 Peter 4, 19. You can do that real quick for me and read it. All right, read it for us. All right, those that suffer do so according to what? God's will. Those that suffer according to God's will, let them entrust their souls to a creator who does good. But the author, for, for Peter, he connects the fact that their suffering is God's will. All right, what should provide encouragement to us here is not only do we have something to rejoice in, not only are our trials for a little while, Peter says they're necessary. They're not by accident. They're not something that just springs up. We've talked about this. God doesn't react to the devil's plans and then fix them for good. God allows the devil's plans because he had good intent all along. So, so Peter is highlighting for us, you've got something great coming. Doesn't matter what your circumstances are. You may be in that group that, that women receive their, their kids back from the resurrection, lions are soft, everything they seem to do turns for good. You may be in the group that nothing goes your way. Everybody rejoices in the same thing, that no matter what you experience here on this earth during this little while, it's far better what's coming. But then for some of us, it's necessary. And 410 tells us it's by God's design, by God's will, that certain trials come our way. And it's, it's probably worth mentioning that there are various trials. They're different, right? The trials that we experience are different than the trials that somebody else experiences. There's all kinds of trials that we go through. And, and I don't think we should minimize the ones that don't sound as serious as somebody else's. Trials are trials. Um, I think it's important too that Peter talks about rejoicing in them, but he doesn't minimize the grief in them either. He doesn't minimize the fact that trials hurt. So I think we, we run amiss if we start trying to challenge somebody to find joy in their circumstances and we 
in some way make them feel as though their grief is invalid and unholy and shouldn't be there. Somebody loses their husband, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, in a tragic camping accident. It does her no good to to try to portray to her that, that God is good and she should be rejoicing if we leave out the part that she has every right to grieve in the midst of it. She ought to grieve. She lost her husband, and that was something that she was not anticipating. She ought to grieve, and I think Peter would allow that. You've been grieved by various trials, but I think he would remind that there's also this element of rejoicing. Why? Because there's coming a time where that heartache will never be experienced again, and it's only going to be experienced for a little while. And for whatever reason in that girl's life, it's necessary. That trial is by God's design, and it is necessary for the testing and the genuineness of her faith. And the the encouragement to us, I think, as well, towards the end here, that at the end, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think God allows things into our life to keep us disconnected from thinking that this is heaven on earth. There are things, I think, that are brought into our life to remind us of that unfading inheritance that we're supposed to be rejoicing in. And though we haven't seen Jesus, we love him. And Jesus talks about to Thomas, blessed are those that that don't see me and trust in me, that don't have to feel my hands to believe in the resurrection. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith salvation of your souls and that idea once again of perseverance runs true that outcome of our faith we keep believing so our application this morning we need to express belief in god but we need to continue expressing belief in god as we move through our life rejoicing not when god's circumstances are good for us here on this earth because they do fade Our circumstances do fade and they change and what may be good today may not be what's good tomorrow in our life. The encouragement to us and the encouragement offered to Abram, Abram, you're not going to see the land and your kids are going to suffer greatly before they ever come to the land. The encouragement to Abram was all these things are working for a bigger plan and I'm cluing you into it. While we don't get details here, Peter clues us into our own lives and he says, for some of us, there are necessary trials that we're going to go through. We should grieve in them. They're not easy. They're hard. But for all of us, the same encouragement is offered. Whether you have no trials going on right now or whether your cup is full, that we all have the same responsibility to rejoice in circumstances that are far greater than the best and the worst here, those that are to come. He talks about there in verse 3. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and thank you for the tangible example of Abraham, a real-life figure in the Old Testament that we can, we can refer back to and we can understand salvation through. Father, we're thankful that you orchestrated the events of Abraham's life so that his salvation came before circumcision. It came before he was considered Jewish. It came before he had really accomplished any good works, before he had offered Isaac as a sacrifice. God, we know you looked down upon him and you you counted him as righteous ultimately because you knew Jesus was going to come and to be that perfect life. 
And God, we're thankful that you have made a way of escape from the wages that we deserve. That instead of our account being full of, of the payment and the wages that we've earned, you have, you have deducted those from our account. You've, you've withdrawn those from our account and you've replaced it instead with something that we didn't earn, something that you earned yourself for us. And so, Father, I pray for, for those of us that are saved, we would be encouraged in knowing that there is an account that is loaded with righteousness that gives us entrance and gives us a claim on this coming glory that Peter talks about, this unfading, imperishable hope, this eternity of good that's separated from sin and death and trials and and tribulations. God, I pray that you would prepare us as Christians. Help us to realize that, that we're going to experience various trials. And it's quite possible that some in this church will experience trials to a far greater degree than others. And God, I pray that it would not lead to discouragement or dissatisfaction with you. Father, we, we want to receive encouragement from Hebrews 11, knowing that for some, you did mighty things. And others, for reasons we don't understand, you allowed things to happen in their life. God, I pray for those in this room that aren't grieved by trials right now, that they would use the time that would have been spent on grieving to encourage those that are grieving. That we would be the body of Christ and we would be very sensitive and attentive to people in our church that express trials that they're going through. For those that seem to to have pressing burdens and needs in their life that need to be tended to. Father, for those that aren't going through various trials right now, help them to be the extension of your grace in the lives of those that are. And Father, for those that aren't experiencing trials right now, I pray that you would prepare them when they do come, that it would not be cause for us to doubt and to wander and to distrust you, but instead would be an opportunity for our faith to be tested, for our faith to be shown as genuine, for our faith to increase in you. God, I know many in here have expressed initial belief in you. I pray that their belief would continue, that you would continue to cultivate a believing heart in the midst of our our people here at Sovereign Hope, even when circumstances seem to dictate otherwise, that we would trust in your ability and your reliability to accomplish what you've promised to do in our lives. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.